You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, happy Easter. So when I was uh, in high school, one of my favorite things to do in the morning was to read the newspaper. Anybody still like a physical newspaper? Yeah? Not just like something glowing on the stand now? Well, I would walk out in the morning, and it was either me or my dad, and we'd walk out, and we got the Oregonian, was the paper we got, up in Portland. And uh, it was usually in some plastic bag that was very wet and cold, and it was kind of a miserable walk usually, but you're excited because then you were going to learn all about everything, right? And you went out, and it was either me or my dad, and we went out, and we would get the paper, take it home, throw the little plastic bag in the trash, and then put the paper on the table. And then we would kind of parse out, like, well, what section do you want? What section do you want? This kind of thing. I would always take the sports, read about the Blazers, you know, and how they lost, you know. And um, as usual, it was exciting when they won. And, um, and then I would, sometimes I would even read, like, obituaries. I just wanted to hear, like, what do people say about people? <laughs> you know, like, at the end of your life, what would you, it was kind of morbid. But then I would always want the comics. I'd always want the funnies, is what we called it. And if I couldn't find it, I would ask. I'd say, well, Dad, have you seen the comics? And cheesy pastor dad alert. My dad would always, with a grin, almost every time, he would say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, if you don't get that, don't worry about it. In the Oregonian, the funnies section of the paper is called the living. Silly, right? If you don't like dad jokes, then I'm just another acorn that fell from that same tree. So I'm going to learn all of those bad things. You can take it up with my dad. But it was always something in my head. He would always, with his slippers and his robes, getting a paper, he would always say, like, why do you seek the living among the dead? And I can't read this passage without seeing my dad right there in front of me saying that to me. Now, I'm glad that you brought up acorns, okay? I want to look at acorns. I want to look at this, okay? You guys have seen acorns before. This is a rather robust acorn. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's got the little hipster beanie thing going on. Uh, the stem that came from, you know, the oak tree. But if you've ever held an acorn, have you, have you ever really just pondered the acorn? Right? It's not just something to throw at a neighbor or your brother or sister. Right? It's not just something that squirrels get. But really thinking of an acorn, so it's, it's incredibly hard. Right, if you take an acorn and you try to just crush it, it's really, really hard to do. You need like pliers or some sort of thing, right? But here's what's fascinating about acorn. At its core, an acorn is a seed. Okay, at its core, it's a seed. So when the acorn, if it falls from the tree and it gets planted or trampled on or goes under into the soil, the moisture and the water that happens on the acorn actually takes that tough exterior and it naturally like awakens it to the softening. And the acorn actually starts to just decompose and open and a bud forms and it grows. And we see these massive, huge oak trees that are just from this. And this is miraculous to me. And here, the reason I bring this up, this is kind of a hope and a prayer that I have for us today. That I think a lot of us myself included, church-going folk, as something like Easter shows up, sometimes we are these acorns, right? We're solid. We know the story. 
we get it. We're like, there's nothing new on Easter morning. It's just like, okay, let's like go do the church thing and let's go Easter egg hunt and have fun and, and do the crafts and all this kind of stuff, right? And there's a lot of worship that happens in that. But I think we like, we're acorns, right? What my prayer today is, is that we as a community, we would allow ourselves to be planted in God's word today, to be planted in something that then can water it and grow it. And we don't stay these acorns, but in the kingdom of heaven, there are these mighty trees, right? It's just a forest. It's a silly analogy. None of this should be new to you. We all learned about acorns in like third grade, right? But it's just that idea of like sometimes we show up and we're already set. We already know who we are, but today we're going to allow God to water that. The story that we've heard a million times, we're going to allow God to water that through his word and allow that softening and new growth and new understanding to happen. Are you guys with me? Yeah? All right, let me pray and let's get into it today. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for us. Lord, thank you that your word is power, that your word is life. And we want to sit in that today. We want to be firmly planted in you, in the truth today, and allow you to shape us and grow us and soften our heart toward you and toward others. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these words and this passage. Um, we give it to you. We pray in your name. Amen. So like we all know, the Easter message is kind of a tale as old as time. But for us, if you look at it today, it's actually a wild story, right? Think about the very first Easter, right? The very first Easter, Jesus, this surprisingly wise and great rabbi out of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, of all places, has this rather large following, right? Albeit it's full of unqualified fishermen, ex-tax collectors, ex-prostitutes, and most of the formerly sick and dying they left everything they had to follow this man. He talked of salvation. He talked of a future for them. But instead of a glorious revolution, just a few nights ago, he was kidnapped in a garden. He was betrayed by one of his followers that feigned friendship with him. He was brutally tortured, whipped, and beaten for entertainment, subjected to one of the most inhumane ways to die on a cross. And just when the last shreds of hope were being cried out for God to save this man, Jesus, even mockingly, that if he had any power of salvation, why doesn't he save himself? Jesus breathed his last and his followers with their hopes with him. And that was it. Three years leading up to this. It's like leading up to a great movie. You've been following the main character. He's training like just practicing, becoming this epic warrior, and then the epic showdown and the bad guy wins. And you just think, why did I just watch that? Like even in our modern entertainment, that would not be entertaining. Like what a disappointing feeling to walk away with, right? And this is a real story. The followers wake up on Sunday, they go to the tomb to present offerings of mourning and remembrance, but something is off. The stone is rolled away. They rush inside and they find no body. What could have happened, right? The tiniest possibility of hope hasn't even dawned on them yet. And the angel appears, or for me, it was my robed and slippered father, who said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And the humans, they must have been shocked, must have been in shock because they, they had to be reminded of this. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, 
and be crucified on the third be crucified and on the third day rise. He literally told you this would happen. So hope begins to rise in these wonderful women as they rush to preach the good news to the apostles and what happens verse 11 but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. The first sermon, the first Easter sermon did not believe. What is hope to someone who has given up? What is good news to someone who has lost hope? Peter, potentially out of guilt for denying Jesus, or potentially out of just a glimmer of hope, he rushes to the tomb and marvels at what he saw. There are still so many questions. And the same questions have been teased out over the centuries. Well, was this actual grave robbers? Like, did other disciples, did they take Jesus' body to kind of fake the resurrection? Did the sick and twisted Romans take his body to do more worse stuff to him? Almost anything but the truth was more acceptable. And they weren't the only followers of Jesus who were having a hard time with this. And today I want to look at this gold story that's put in Luke 24. It's called The Road to Emmaus. I want to look at this story. If you have a Bible or a smartphone, you want to turn to it, I'll have it on the screen. But it's Luke 24, verse 13. I want to look at two other disciples who are having a hard time with this. That very day, that Easter morning day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Okay, so these are two disciples of Jesus, not one of the twelve or now the eleven, but they were part of this kind of greater body of disciples who followed Jesus' teaching. Well, that same day, after all these things had happened, they were walking away from Jerusalem going the opposite way. If you look, look at Luke's gospel, his entire gospel has been pointing everything crescendoing into Jerusalem, and it happened, and these two are just walking away from there. Their minds racing with just with what went over in that weekend. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, so this third person just shows up, but they don't know who he was, and I love this. And he, being Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? Like, just cheeky Jesus, right? Like, hey, what's going on? What's the scuttlebutt, right? Like, what's the talk around town? It's like, it's like all those movies where people kind of fake their death, and then they show up to the funeral to see, like, who showed up, that kind of thing, you know? But more than anything, this says their true posture when they answer Jesus says, they stood still looking sad. On Easter morning, the first Easter morning, they stood still looking sad. Have you ever had like a life-changing experience in your life and someone, you, you feel like you can't even have the words to say and someone's like, well, how was that thing? And you just don't know even what to say. And if it's a hard experience, it's just silence. Sadness is their state watching their Jesus, who had, they had left everything for, believed in his teachings, believed he was who he said he was, watching him be horrifically tortured and killed in one of the most inhumane ways possible. They're sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Everyone knows this. This was hugely traumatic and memorable for this entire city. 
Well, cheeky Jesus strikes again. And he said to them, "Uh, what things? (laughs) And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Look at that sentence. Our priests and rulers killed this prophet, not the Christ, not the Savior anymore. He doesn't get that title. He died. He was a prophet, a mighty man. The confusion. These were our rulers and our chief priests and our religious leaders, but he was supposed to be our Christ and our Messiah. But for them, Christ meant something different. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, spoiler alert. It's a title for Savior, right? But the question is, Savior can mean something different to, to each one of us. So it begs the question for them, salvation from what or to what? So they reveal, these two disciples, what Christ meant for them. This is verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That was their hope. That was everything they put on Jesus, to redeem Israel. Now, anytime in the scriptures the word redeem is used, especially when used in terms of liberation of a nation, it's almost always a nod back to Exodus, right? Salvation from big bad Egypt. The great nation of Israel shall rise again, right? They all know the promise that was made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 too, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So they know that. How can we be a great nation when we're enslaved to the empire, right? Even though this happened a long time ago, this is a huge part of Israel's history. This is burned into the memory and identity of any Israelite, and it's just a matter of now the empire has a new name. Same enemy, different face. Now it's called Rome, and we are under its oppression. Redemption from Rome is the goal, to make Israel great again. What's crazy is they just told the truth. Jesus did identify with the prophet as one who comes in the name of the Lord. He was mighty in deed and word in before God and all the people. But he was condemned, and he was crucified, and he had told of the redemption of Israel, but they just never quite understood the how the redemption was supposed to happen. And for, him, for them, their how was just dashed upon a wooden cross. And here's what's crazy. They even remember that today was supposed to be special. Look at what he says. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Okay, that burned in his memory. He knew that. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier in the morning. We read that. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They just told the story. They just told the Easter story. The tomb was empty. The angels were speaking to humans. Jesus is said to be alive, and yet you are walking away dejected and hopeless. Because again, good news is nothing to people who have given up hope, right? It was just a hope upon a prayer that Jesus would actually raise from the dead. And after what they did to him, it was hard to keep that hope. So even though they heard that good news, that Jesus was risen, they could not let themselves believe because they did not see him. Now, there's a term that's really popular right now. It's been around for a while, but it's this term called deconstruction. Have you guys heard this word before? 
right? It's used in a lot of different ways. But I hear this all the time. So-and-so has deconstructed their faith. Have you heard this, this term before? Okay. What that usually means is someone has grown up or been brought up in the faith of the Bible, and then they come into questions or doubts, seeming contradictions, and then the faith is really hard to keep because now it's not so certain. So the walls start to crumble down, and sadly, more often than not, it seems people just can't rebuild and they walk away entirely. It's easier to sometimes walk away than to rediscover that hope. The crazy thing is, in the term deconstruction, for a lot of people, it's changed the term into just demolition, right? More than anything else. Just demolishing belief systems, demolishing parental wisdom, demolishing societal and social norms in order to recreate for ourselves what is true. But deconstruction is not demolition. It's the breaking down of something to really get at its core truth to then have a stronger and more robust understanding than ever. Okay, that's what deconstruction is. Well, these two disciples are having a deconstruction moment. It's in our Bible. We didn't make it up, right? They're having this moment. We thought this. We thought this about the Christ, that he was going to do this. That didn't pan out. Now we're sad and we're struggling with what was this all about. Now, this is cool. Jesus steps in a bit more forcefully, and he literally walks our two disciples through their deconstruction. If you're following along, Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, he's a little harsh here, but, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here it is, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. He just goes for it. Okay, well, chapter one, right? Let's break all this down. A people of God, we don't need to be afraid of deconstruction, right? This is good. We need to break this down. Jesus did it. Jesus did it for his disciples. It's just when it becomes the demolition, right? Is that not what we attempt here on Sundays? We break down passages to better understand them and grow our faith and our understanding. And questions should come up. This stuff is hard. This stuff is hard to wrap our minds with. Resurrection of Jesus. That's insane. That's crazy, right? But Jesus also does something here. Remember, they called Jesus a prophet. But Jesus is recalibrating them to who the prophets always pointed towards right? Even if he was just a prophet, it should all, he should be the one pointing towards Christ as well, who was to suffer all these things and then be risen on the third day. So if Jesus is not the Christ, then the Christ is right behind him, right? He's just the next guy, but it is the Christ. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. I love that. Like, all right, see ya. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent, right? They're like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 you're, you're, you're encouraging. We were sad and depressed, and all of our hopes were gone, but you just, you just relit something. What, 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 what did you just talk about? You need to stay with us. Please don't leave. So Jesus went in and stayed with them. Now, this is awesome. This is just, you know, an Eastern custom of hospitality that, that welcomes Jesus, a stranger, into their house. Um, but there's more that's huge here. Remember what this weekend was? Besides crucifixion and death of Jesus, what was all of Jerusalem supposed to be celebrating? Does anyone know? Passover, right? They were literally supposed to be spending seven days 
remembering and celebrating God's redemption and deliverance from Egypt so long ago, and then eating only unleavened bread to remember his provision in the wilderness, okay? It was customary for the host of each home then to serve his or her honored guests as they sit in that seat of honor. Here's what Jesus did. He comes into a stranger's home. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Jesus assumes the role of host, and he pronounces once more the memory of Passover, and a combination of, him see, of seeing him do this action, and of course divine revelation that only God can do. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and I love this, and he vanished, and he vanished from their sight. Back in Jerusalem, there was an empty tomb. Here in this stranger's house, on the road to Emmaus, there was an empty seat at the table. But, verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They lit the fire, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Hope burned again in their hearts. What was once gone, now hope burned in them, right? They were deflated, but now after the breaking of bread, their eyes were open, and now again, though they do not see him, they believe and they know him. Their faith is realized again. And I love the gospel writer Luke. He never actually names the other disciple, and that's intentional, right? That's for you and me to put ourselves in that spot. You and I are that other disciple. Well, what do they do when that hope burns in them again? Immediately back on the road, back to Jerusalem to tell the others a renewed hope. And as they are all gathered together, talking about these things, just like these two disciples were walking away, he, Jesus appears out of nowhere. Peace to you, he says. Verse 37 of chapter 24, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This incredible thing had just happened to Cleopas and the other disciple, the unknown disciple, the renewal of their hope, but this hasn't hit the 11 yet. They're back in the throes of standing still, sad. Their dreams were shattered as well. And as we saw earlier, Jesus himself appeared, appearing to a person has, has given them the superstition of this, it's a ghost. Or I've heard it's a, it's a sky fairy, <laughs> right? Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that, is I, that, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is a very kind account of this. And Mark, he actually rebukes his disciples, Mark 16, 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. But Luke has a little bit kinder. And they still couldn't believe it, Luke 24, 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. And I love it. There's probably some like huge significance to that, but I just love that like it's some inside jokes like, oh, that's so Jesus, like he loves his broiled fish, you know. 
But this is what Jesus says to them to renew their hope. Verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I have fulfilled the scriptures. The law and the prophets and the writings that we live by, I am the fulfillment of them. And this is huge. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Man, I want that so badly, right? Just open our minds, Lord, to understand these scriptures, to get this so viscerally like the two traveling to Emmaus who hope burned once more in them. And then they hear this proclamation of the simple gospel. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Israel, right? The horrific nature of the cross was not just an accident or something that shouldn't have happened. This was the intentional saving work of redeeming the people of Israel. This is exactly what it took to be able to truly once and for all forgive sins, not just for them, but for anyone. And he concludes with his followers, you are the witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, which of course is the Holy Spirit, who, as he told his followers back in John's account, John 14, 26, but my helper, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Friends, this is the charge of Easter, right? We're still being the witnesses of Jesus, being the fulfillment of all that is written in our scriptures and that the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. Not because we're so eloquent in speech, or we have all the knowledge, but because we have the scriptures and we have faith that Jesus did what he said he did. Remember them. Remember the witnesses God chose first in the scriptures here had questions. They had doubts. They had fears and didn't always move quickly to spread the news or get it right the first time. God still chose them as witnesses of his gospel, and he still chooses you and me as a witness to his gospel. You are qualified to be his witness because he has sent his Holy Spirit to be your helper. The Holy Spirit qualifies us to share the good news. But there's more. Then what is the hope for us while we're still on earth, right? We have this future, we have this inheritance, we have this good news. What is the hope for us while we're still on earth? Well, every year, and, and hopefully more than once a year, we are reminded of this resurrection story, right? But we need, we need to think through that acorn analogy, okay? Think of like the planting of this thing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, takes this a step further in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Okay, he uses the analogy of, of wheat. Later in 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Then a few, years, a few verses later, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. And he concludes with this natural body is this image of creation of the dust, but then something else happens. Verse 49, 
Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And when I read that, there was a, there was a phrase that came to my head, and like all anything that's remotely smart, I Google it, because <laughs> I probably read it somewhere <laughs> or something. So this is actually a quote from Athanasius, this fourth century deacon who stole it from me, right? But he said, he became what we are, that we might become what he is. Isn't that beautiful? Our life now in this is this acorn moment of being in the dust and being broken down so that we wouldn't stay the acorn, right? But rather grow and become a mighty blessing watered and grown by God alone. And a few verses later, Paul illustrates what happens here in this death of the acorn kind of new life. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Quoting Hosea, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is our hope right now. There is no victory in death, but it, is just, it just gives way for life that is truly life. In the flesh now, we know that in, our, our, in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. But this hope that we have, so if you believe that, and this hope that we have, we need to also make sure that it's not a hope that can just be taken away from us. Right? And you make sure it's not just a hope that can be broken down and dismissed and destroyed. Right? It's rooted in the proper hope that is only through Jesus, a hope that cannot be destroyed or taken away. Years later, in his letter to the church, reflecting upon the resurrection, who better to write these powerful words than Peter himself, who denied Christ, but Peter in 1 Peter 1, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. A living hope, something alive and active in us all the time, something that can withstand being slandered, something that can withstand being defiled and misunderstood because it is undefilable and imperishable. It's the kind of faith you can't demolish because if you try, it'll just rise up again like Jesus. In fact, the resurrection should deconstruct our ideas of what life is. The resurrection throws everything we know upside down. Death actually isn't the end. That alone <laughs> should flip everything else, right? Death isn't the end, but it's the beginning of eternity with God, and that is the concept. If that doesn't break down everything, we are actually putting our hope and faith in this life on earth. If that doesn't break that down and switch it around, I don't know what will. And I love how Peter calls this a great mercy, that God has given us this imperishable gift based on faith. What a mercy it is to not let death be the final act. It's funny, we spend so much time talking about eternity and if, you know, we could spend eternity with God and what's it going to be like, reverse it. God wants to spend eternity with you. That's shocking. <laughs> I'm talking to myself, not just you. But like, God wants to spend eternity with us. That's crazy. Even in marriage, it's till death do us part. There's still an out with marriage, right? But <laughs> God is like, eternally, I want to be with you. All this is possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has done the impossible so that it would be possible for us through faith. 
Peter ends his first thought on his letters by reminding us of the two travelers on the road to Emmaus who heard of the empty tomb, but they did not see Jesus, who then saw Jesus and then he vanished again right before their eyes. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you're here today and you believe Jesus took your sins on the cross, then he took them to the grave, grave, death accepting the payment, but then in three days broke the dominant hand of death to reveal an even more supreme power, life. Then that same life today he offers to you and to me upon faith. And today there are so many ways to celebrate and enjoy our King Jesus. And we're going to start first through baptism, okay? We have people here today who have recognized, just like Jesus on the cross, surrendered, surrendering his will to the Father. We surrender our life to the only one who can really save it. Then as Jesus was buried in the tomb, we enter the waters, not just as a symbolism for this death, but also a symbolism of the cleansing of sin that can only happen through grace through faith, or by grace, through faith in Jesus. Then the rising out of the waters, like leaving the empty tomb, to live in the new resurrection life only made possible because of Easter morning. And then communion. Like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they realize Jesus through the breaking of the bread. Some traditions do not include communion on Easter day. It's not a time to remember his death, time to remember his risen, Right? But we have the bread and we have the cup and we celebrate the victory over, over death as we remember what it cost Jesus so that it could be a great mercy and joy to us. And then, of course, Hub City, we're going to sing loudly. All right, we're going to sing loudly. We're going to shout for joy, as the psalmist often puts it. And let our singing be prayers of thanksgiving today as we remember our risen King. Let me pray and then let's respond today.